1: This episode is brought to you by Buyers Agency Australia.
0: And then, uh, then there's the greed gland. The greed gland is, uh, if you can, if you can activate the greed gland, then that person will want to get the most amount of money, humanly possible, out of the deal. Uh, and so, for that person. They want to share the reward, so they need to share the risk as well.
1: This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Sham and in this episode of Property Investor vs. Developer, we're chatting with Rob Flux from Property Developer Network. Continuing his 7 Strategies to Financial Freedom, He reveals further secrets to maximizing profits through the art of understanding seller needs. Plus, he explains how going tax-free can boost your earnings by $200,000. Flux has a strategy for every day of the week and he's happy to share them on any day that ends with a why. Within his seven strategies, he reveals where untold opportunities may just be lingering beneath the surface. With this, he reveals multiple pathways available to traverse towards property success.
0: Uh, Another approach might be come to a larger developer that is doing many, many projects. uh, And because of the fact that they're running many projects, They may not have the bandwidth to run all of them at once. So they might want to take on a junior that will do a lot of the work for them. So, you know, take that as a as a wage and you're going to again earn as you learn. Uh, Someone else is going to give you guidance and mentoring and all that sort of thing to to actually uh, go through that process uh, as you go. Um, Or you might find a high net worth individual who's got more money than God, uh, who uh, who I guess, wants to, uh, I guess, tell all their friends and family that they are the property developer, but in reality, they don't do any of the work and uh, it's you going to actually run the process for them.
1: I think I like that one too. It's not a bad one. <laughs> uh, having, having a financial backer is always, always handy, especially when you're running projects as well. But uh, I guess that also comes as a skill too, and especially when you're saying with the vendor, if they've never run a project or done development before, it's very risky for them. But if someone with a bit of experience in, in project management, um, it actually de-risks the whole project. And it, that means, you know, at least the project will be completed and they won't be stuck and feeling as frustrated if they'd ran it themselves. And I've seen that happen many, many times because most of the time people just want to get out of a project if it's been running for too long and they've been trying to do it themselves because they just get frustrated and they're too close to it. So that's that's interesting, very, very interesting. All right, well, Third strategy is vendor finance and we've touched on that already very much early in the piece of this episode. Is there anything else you wanted to add on that strategy?
0: Well, let's firstly start with the definition of what vendor finance is and that's uh, the vendor, the person selling the property effectively becomes the bank for you. So, at this point, you don't need to go and uh, I guess prove your serviceability, you don't need to do a credit reference check, you don't need to do all of those things and you don't need to Fund, I guess, fund the 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 purchase because the vendor themselves are actually bankrolling you. Now that typically takes one of two forms. Okay, Uh, so it might be that you've got a huge amount of serviceability, uh, and that serviceability could fund the purchase, the eighty percent part of the deal, but it might not be able. But you might not have the deposit part of the deal. So the vendor would be happy if you can get a a bank approval for the 80%. They'll get 80% upfront cash today, right? Which might be enough for them to go on and buy their next property or do that round the world trip that they were looking for or whatever that might be. And the 20% deposit, they become the bank and they bankroll you for that 20% deposit. So they would take a second mortgage against the property in order to secure it because at that point you already own it uh, and you would pay them an, a flat interest rate for the duration of the project. So that's the most common scenario we see with vendor finance uh, but there's no but it might be even you have some deposit maybe uh, uh, maybe instead of the 20% you might have 10% so they're only bankrolling uh, I guess that 10% shortfall for example. So lots of different ways of actually carving that up no, no one Uh, circumstances right. If you take that to an extreme, the vendor could potentially fund the entire purchase. So they have the property, they know that you're going to to run it for the development process, they know that you're going to get a whole bunch of cash at the tail end, and they want to profit from that as they go. Um, In many instances, this is their principal place of residence. So any uplift that they get for that property at all, uh, is going to be uh, capital gains tax-free. So it's about how do you structure that deal in such a way that it reflects, I guess, the savings in interest and per- potentially some other savings that you're actually going to get um, in there. And so the so at that extreme, the vendor finance actually, uh, I guess, changes to the next strategy. So when you get it to the full funding, it actually changes the next one, which is called delayed settlement with early access, right? Right. So in that, in that instance, and I'll give a perfectly good example here, let's just say you've got a project that's going to take 12 months to run. Uh, it's a million dollars to purchase the property. Um, you know that if you uh, get a delayed settlement for 12 months, you may potentially be able to have completely run the project and sold the finished product before even owning the first one, right? So, uh, so you might be able to sell off the plan, the finished product and, and never have to actually bankroll the purchase. Now, in that instance, we've got a couple of things that go to our favor. So if I use that million dollar purchase as an example, interest rates today, six and a half, seven 7% interest. So there's, you know, $70,000 worth of interest, that I'd be giving to the Commonwealth Bank, the ANZ, Westpac, whoever is their bank. Well, rather than give it to them, why don't I give that to the vendor, right? Uh, now, if I don't settle for 12 months, that's 12 months that it's not in my name, that's 12 months that I won't be paying land tax on. So rather than giving that to the Office of State Revenue, why don't I give that to the vendor? So now, now we're $80,000 that I could give them. Um, my rates side of things, well, there's probably another $10,000 in rates So, rather than giving that to the council, why don't I give that to the vendor? So, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to look at all of the holding costs that we would have incurred if we had purchased it. That would have impacted our cash flow and we instead give it to the vendor at the tail end of the process. And by doing that, we uplift the the cost of the property. In many instances, close to the 10% uplift in, in purchase price. And you may even round it up to ten percent, just so that it actually looks good. Uh, So you might say, "Well, I can give you a million dollars today, or I could give you one point one if you can wait twelve months." Now, -hmm. if that is their principal place of residence, that hundred k extra, because it's tax free, is effectively kind of two hundred k that they would have had to have earned in order to get there, right? And it's all about how you position that to them uh and i guess the key element there is understanding do they have time on their hands right if they, sometimes people aren't in a hurry to sell now if we're going through an agent the agent believes that they're always in a hurry to sell <laughs> right because <laughs> they want that commission check right but uh but if you're dealing directly it's a lot easier to actually get to, to actually understand and, and i think if time permits we can actually talk to how do we tease some of those needs out of the, the vendor.
1: Since we're on that topic, let's keep going. I, I really like that and it's really important to share this because there's so many different ways you can approach it with the vendor, especially if, you know, as you said, it's a principal place of residence, they're happy to stay there and all you're really doing is just doing all the background, you know, paperwork and stuff, getting the DA approved, etc. Um, you know, there's, there's a huge upside for a vendor to, to go into a, a, a deal like this because the fact is, is that they know pretty much there in say 12 months time they're going to get their money and you know for them to go and work and making like two hundred thousand to keep 100k it's a no-brainer
0: <laughs> so trying to understand that vendor's needs is really the key to that um and with I'll, I'll talk to how do we tease it out of them in a sec but fundamentally there's only a couple of things that people are actually looking for they either want certainty so they don't like risk. So I need certainty. I need to know that I'm actually categorically going to get that cash, right? Um, so some people that is their primary driver, okay? Other people are prepared to be a little bit more risky because they know there's a little bit of reward at the tail end. So when you understand where that person sits, you can immediately look at some of those strategies to go, well, you know, doing a joint venture with the landowner, if they, if they want certainty that, that that's probably not the one for them as an example. Okay. Uh, but a delayed settlement with early access, well, that gives them certainty. You've guaranteed their price point, gives them the certainty. So they're happy. Okay. Um, other people, time is their driver. So they might have some some cash flow issues right here, right now. So they might have already bought the next property, for example. So they need their cash now. Um, they might have some uh, some expenses that they're, maybe they're behind on their bank payments or things like that. So uh, maybe they don't have huge, uh, I guess, cash flow needs right now, but they might have some. So they might not need all of the, the money. They might only need 100K. So, you know, for example, if they've lost their job and they've fallen behind in their mortgage repayments and they're, uh, they're a little bit behind in that, then, you know, that hundred K might be able to get them to catch up with that. And you might offer to, for the duration of the loan, you might for the duration of that 12 months, you might offer to actually pay their mortgage repayments for them. So you're not cash flowing everything for the purchase. You're just cash flowing a small amount. So understanding those, I guess those short term cash requirements. Uh, and then, uh, then there's the greed gland, right? <laughs> uh the greed gland is uh, if you can if you can activate the greed gland, then that person will want to get the most amount of money uh, humanly possible out of the deal. Uh, and so, for that person, then I guess uh, they want to share the reward, so they need to share the risk as well. Okay. So fundamentally, when you break it down, there's really only two drivers that you can use to actually pay more for property, right? So one is time, and we can actually calculate the exact holding costs. So if they give me 12 months, then I can calculate the savings in that 12 months. And then uh, risk, if they share the risk of the deal, so if they stay in the deal and they use their property as equity for us to secure the construction loan, they're sharing the risk, they should share the reward. So they should have a share in the profit.
1: Very well said. And what you've said there sounds really... Like It makes absolute sense, to, in my opinion. It sounds really simple, but when it comes to actually application, it's a different kettle of fish, I guess you'd say, because we don't know what the vendors are thinking exactly and so forth. And this is why this process, in my opinion, takes a lot longer.
0: It takes some creative uh, conversations, that is for sure, and the ability to tease those needs out of the vendor. And uh, uh, we've still got three more strategies that we want to talk to, but uh, I think we can probably... Uh, have a small bit of, at the at the end to try and help people to actually work out how to tease that out.
1: Coming up after the break, he delves into the journey that is joint ventures.
0: But basically, you're going arm in arm uh, with, I guess, somebody else.
1: Outlines the potential risks and benefits.
0: Now, the interest rates that people pay are very uh, subjective based on how much money How much risk? What is the security protection?
1: He breaks down an often misunderstood concept behind one strategy.
0: This is the hammer. This is where everything starts looking like a nail.
1: And that's next. I'm Tyrone Sham and you're listening to Property Investory. Flux has ventured into vendor financing, delayed settlement, and early access, leaving joint ventures as the next intriguing topic.
0: So joint ventures are really having a look at the strengths and weaknesses of the the parties involved, and sometimes it's two parties, sometimes it's many, and joining forces to say, well, I'm weak in one area, but I'm strong in another. How do we dovetail that together so the two of us can actually solve a problem? So you might be really good and, and skillful in the how to run it, um, you might have some cash, but not all the cash, and you find someone that actually matches the difference and you and you plug that gap, okay? Um, sometimes that's the vendor themselves, okay? Because they've got a whole bunch of equity in the property. Uh, sometimes that might be uh, friends, family, that sort of thing who uh, have a high serviceability and some liquid cash. Um, they might have a property that they've owned uh, for 20 odd years that's got a whole bunch of equity built into it. So lots of different ways you can tap into, uh, I guess, the, the cash requirement, but basically you're going arm in arm uh, with I guess somebody else, and and the, between the two of you, you're going to one person will fund it, the other person will run it. Okay, that they're typically the I guess the scenarios that that tend to happen. Um, and in the early days, if you've got absolutely no money, if you if you are missing all three of those elements, then you might find a single person that will plug all three gaps. That for the for the entry level projects that's typically a 50 50 profit split. you are the sweat equity partner uh, the other person's the money partner 50 50 is generally uh, how that goes. now as the deals start to get bigger and bigger and bigger then the financial contribution starts to become a bigger contribution than the than the running of the deal element so you know that might change to a 60 40 and then later on as you get bigger again that might change to a 70 30. Um, but it's 30% of a much bigger pie.
1: Joint ventures are interesting um, strategy because it does require also a bit of a creative way of looking at how to find and I guess you can say fund the different things, uh, especially when (laughs) usually I see joint ventures happen where there's someone who's starting out in in development, they don't have much cash at all and they need someone to be able to help fund the deal, just exactly what you said. And those kind of deals usually start off with... um, great intentions and everything goes really, really well. But, you know, obviously, there's a lot of inexperience that comes along in that. And I think that's where I just want to caution, you know, when you're doing joint venture, get a lot of um, discussions going and and work with experienced people so that way you can avoid some of the pitfalls that I've seen happen as well.
0: And make sure that that is documented through a formal legal document, so a formal joint venture, not a handshake, that sort of thing. So uh, I I absolutely categorically endorse what you're saying there. Um, That said everyone has to do deal number one. Uh, so, uh, it's about, well, is this person the path to actually solve my particular, uh, issues and challenges? Do I know how to run the deal? Um, no. So then I'm happy to invest in someone who's invested their time and effort and skills in actually learning it. Uh, so, uh, that's why I guess the, the profit split is typically th- those sorts of uh, scenarios. Um, in, in drawing up the legal document, this, this is a uh, I guess a, key consideration. My my joint venture template uh, is about 40 pages, okay? Um, And the reason is that uh, even, and I'll use a marriage, right? So, you love someone and you go into a marriage with all the right intentions and 50% of them fail, right? Uh, So, a marriage is a contract of sorts. So, imagine what's going to happen when you've got two personalities that are going into something that has a little element of risk, has a lot of money involved, uh, personalities can start to grate on each other um, very, very quickly. So it's key, key that firstly, you understand each other's personalities and strengths and weaknesses and that sort of thing. Uh, and secondly, you put together effectively what in the marriage world we'd call a prenup or, or a binding financial agreement. You're putting the joint venture document together to say, well, if this doesn't work out, the rules of engagement say that we are going to disconnect in this particular way or when this particular problem happens, then we're going to engage it in this way. So we want to deal with all the things that could possibly go wrong. So what happens if our money partner gets hit by a bus and can't work and hasn't got any money anymore? Uh, What happens if uh, the, the sweat equity partner gets uh, sick, you know, cancer, that sort of thing can't run the deal anymore. So the ability to swap people out during the project, that sort of thing, and how does that actually work? When does that actually get triggered? Um, what hap- who is the decision maker? Who's going to make the decisions in the deal? If there's two people as a JV, one person wants to do one thing, the other person wants to do something else, that's a split decision. Is, is there a requirement for, I guess, a, a tiebreaker, right? Uh, uh, or has one person got, I guess, the, the full power to run the deal because they've put all the effort into getting the skills in order to do that. Uh, what happens if from a profit split perspective, one person wants cash, the other person wants to keep stock, right? So there's gotta be mechanisms in how to actually capture all of that. Uh, you know, so there's a whole bunch that needs to go into the joint venture document, which is why mine is 40 odd pages. Uh, and it sounds complex, but it's actually, I guess, fairly plain English to read. And, uh, you know, and when you look through the individual elements, you go, oh, I can see why that's there, it, you know, makes common sense. Uh, but I've seen a lot of people go in with a handshake. Um, so bad, 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 please don't do that. Um, uh, or, or, or joint venture documents that are only three or four pages long, and it's not thought about any of those particular circumstances.
1: And I think this is the good thing about what you mentioned, those examples and those questions that you raised, is definitely you know a portion of what you need to sit down. That's why I'm saying you got to have a lengthy conversation with you know a potential joint venture partner. Firstly, you know really get to understand their personalities. Don't just jump in. You know the first hour or two to having a great combination and a great chat and stuff. You got to really start to work with them first before you actually do anything serious with them. And, and that takes time. So, you know all I say is just think about it carefully before you know designing anything on the dotted line with doing any of these type of things because it takes time
0: absolutely and highly recommend legal advice to actually put that together okay in doing that uh i guess there's a couple of things to consider if you go and engage a solicitor that solicitor is motivated incentivized to protect you they go and get a separate lawyer they are motivated and incentivized to protect them And so there's going to be a difference between them that's going to cause conflict. And it's about understanding that the joint venture is not about the difference. The joint venture is about the bonding and the joining of those together. So there will be an element of risk. And it's about making sure that that element of risk is shared appropriately between each other, Uh, that understanding that any stick that's going to beat one person up has to be the exact same stick that beats the other person up. Uh, You know, it can't be one-sided. It has to be very... Uh, and equally, you know, the, the carrot and the stick kind of thing, equally, the carrot has to be uh, equal as well. Uh, and so I've found that rather than getting independent uh, solicitors who they charge on an early rate basis and they're just going to find reasons to fight. Um, instead, go arm and arm with your JV partner to the same solicitor and say, we together are the one client. So, we together are the one client. You are going to write a JV document that's going to work for both of us, okay? Uh, you are both then getting your independent advice. If you need to then take that out to an independent solicitor to review that, that's okay. But you've, you know that the foundation pieces that are sitting in there are based on, I guess, the mutual benefit of both.
1: That's excellent. I, I think that's really smart. Okay. Well, we covered off on joint ventures as a strategy. We've got two more to go. And the last two is uh, private loans. And uh, I'll talk about that afterwards, uh, the next one, but let's jump in to talk a little bit about private loans.
0: So private loans is where you might have uh, someone that's got some loose cash lying around that is prepared to invest in your project in order to, uh, I guess, contribute along the way where you've got most of the money to run the deal, but you've just got a small shortfall, okay? And typically what I find is the journey that, um, I guess, novice and and entry-level developers actually go through is, hey, I've got no cash. So deal number one, I will do a joint venture. And then I now have some cash. And so deal number two, I probably don't need a full joint venture because I don't want to give 50% of the profit away. But instead, I've got a shortfall and I might give, I guess, an interest rate to someone to just fund the shortfall. That's typically the journey that I see people actually go on. Now, the uh, interest rates that people pay are very uh, subjective, based on how much money, how much risk, what is the security protection. You know, is it a first mortgage, second mortgage? Is it a is it a caveat? Uh, is it just a, a personal guarantee? So, the higher the risk, then the higher the reward um, that actually goes into it. So, you could uh, you could pay anywhere from ten to thirty percent interest rate uh, for that cash. And I can straight away hear the screams in the crowd going, 30%, what are you talking about? Um, I, <laughs> but I want to say, uh, you know, when we're talking about that, typically it's that 15 to 20% mark is the most common part, but it's 15% on a small number for a small amount of time. So as an example, if you were short 100K and you only need it for 12 months, that's $15,000 worth of interest. But if you're making 150 dollars or $200,000 profit, then that 15 dollars is really just a line item in your feasibility at, as a cost. Uh, and so, we need to look at it like that to say, well, I couldn't do the deal if I didn't have it. Um, and rather than begrudge what the interest rate looks like on paper, we need to instead look at what is the dollar cost of that and is that the enabler for me to actually do the deal.
1: That's exactly right. and You hit the nail right on the head, Rob, because that's exactly what I was going to say because I deal in the private loan space and speak to a lot of private investors and so forth and, um, you know, a lot of people ask the same question it's like, wow, that's a lot of interest that they're paying but in actual fact, if they didn't actually get the loan, the deal falls over and they'll actually lose out a lot more or not even get the project finished. So, for them, they go, okay, look, it's only a small price to pay, it's only short term and, you know, it helps fund the project to get it to its completion which is going to be profitable and therefore, it's a win-win for everyone. So, it's a very, very good point and it is a space that's um, now becoming more and more popular because especially when banks and uh, large institutions are taking a long time um, to, to provide loans, people are moving <laughs> into private space. So, um, all good. So, that's private loans. And then one final and last one which is a very um, creative way to look at uh, strategies is the option contracts. So, let's take a look at that one.
0: So an option contract is a very misunderstood concept. And so there's a legal definition of it, and then I'm going to break it down into a lay term so that it's a little bit more, uh, I guess, uh, understanding. So the legal definition is it's the right, but not the obligation to purchase a property at a predetermined price at a point in time in the future. So, what that means in lay speak is, look, I've, I've negotiated a price that I, at some point in the future, I will decide if I want to go ahead, okay? And I might not go ahead because I might not get the approval. I might not get ahead because the market conditions have gone against me. I might not go ahead because the, the cost of construction has gone up. But if I go ahead, then I've negotiated a typically a higher price point to actually purchase that property, so, for me, it's a de-risking element. So, I have the ability to run away where humanly possible. Uh, and for the vendor, it is the, I guess, the uplift in price that they are likely to get from that outcome, okay? Now, uh, there are lots of people that, uh, I guess, when we were talking before about having many, many tools in your toolbox, um When they've only got one, it's usually the option. This is the hammer. This is where everything starts looking like a nail because they want to make everything an option contract. So it allows you to control a property for a period of time, right, to allow you to run the development approval, get that soft equity uplift. But at some point in time, you must settle if your intention is to construct, right, if your intention is not to construct, if your intention is to flick it on, you, it gives you time to buy the, find the ultimate buyer and you've controlled the property without ever owning it just for that small option fee. Okay, uh, But if your intention is to, I guess, construct, then you have to uh, ultimately settle the property. So you've bought time to find investors to do that. You've bought time to allow another project to finish so you can get the cash. So it's really good to actually buy the time to actually allow you to shuffle things under the covers, but you can't actually start to construct and that's probably where it breaks down its strength. So it's really, really strong up until that point, but hey, I want to start and get on with things. Uh, If I want to start to dig up somebody's backyard or if I want to start to knock down their house, there is no way on earth that they are going to let me do that when I have the right but not the obligation to purchase, right? So I am going to knock down your house. No way, if you may not purchase it. No way will I let you do that. But if we compare that to the delayed settlement with early access, well, we've given them a guarantee we're going to settle, right? Um, they go, well, sure. If you need to knock that down, if that's what if that's what it is to to uh, get your cash flow out, absolutely, because they know that the. That the money's coming so that's the subtlety between a couple of these is knowing which person if if they want certainty and delayed settlement with early access if they want to share the risk then an option contract might be able to give them an uplift in that process so there's subtleties in how that works now i was going to say that's a fairly complex way of explaining it but um strangely we use an option contract of sorts in our day-to-day world a lot of the time, and people don't even realise that that's what it is. Um, so, if you have ever laybied anything at the shops, that is fundamentally an option. Okay, uh, so you will put a small deposit down for them, and, and the people who advertise this the most, Target, do these Christmas specials for the toys. So, Christmas special in July, hey, buy your toys right now. Put it on layby, right? So, you put down a deposit. And they go put the toy behind the counter. Uh, for a period of time, and somewhere between now and Christmas, you have the opportunity to pay the balance and pick up the toy. If you don't pay the balance, then Target gets to keep the the, the option fee or the or the, the deposit, and they also get to keep the toy and sell it again. So it's a it's a win for Target, uh, and it's also a win for you because you actually get the, I guess, the, the the illusion at least that you're going to pick that up. Um, so in the property space, that becomes an, an advantage to the buyer because in that time, you would have funded and run the process to actually get the development approval. So if you never actually settle, then they didn't fund the DA and they got the benefit from the DA. So in many instances, their property is actually worth more if you don't settle. Right. So, uh, but the likelihood is that you will because why would you spend all that time and effort and money in the process unless you actually had intentions to complete?
1: And on top of that, the only reason why, you know, people who who have to let it go is, as you said, you know, there's increasing costs or the market's changed, etc. And they, you know, have no choice. But, yeah, at least the vendor will have an upside, you know. So, that's the reason why they would probably jump into an option contract because of that. So, Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I think we've covered all the seven strategies, and uh, we've done pretty well, actually, in in this that we've provided so many creative strategies. And I hope that all those creative strategies that um, we've talked about can potentially be one that you just pull out the toolbox and you know try and use it as a potential solution for one of your development deals. Now, did you want to add anything else, Rob, to to this? Because it's been a fantastic uh, discussion about all these strategies.
0: Rather than adding, it's probably just summarizing what we. Uh, what we've said in, in a nice, succinct package. So the key to making this work is to not make it about you, but to make it about the vendor, okay? What is the need of the vendor? And can you solve that need in a creative way, rummage around in your toolbox of seven creative strategies and find the gap in your shortcomings and their need and see whether or not you can actually make that happen. Have... All the tools in your toolbox and not just the help.
1: Thank you to Rob Flux, our guest on this special episode of Property Investory.